Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Arbana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So glad to see all of you here this morning. Thank you, Ray, for reading that rather lengthy text and reading with expression, too. I appreciate that. Kind of reminds me of when I was learning to read in school, and the teacher would always emphasize, now, when you read aloud, read with expression. That, by the way, was in the 11th grade. Anyway, um, one piece of information that is important to this family that uh, is too recent a development to have gotten either into the bulletin or apparently into the announcements, and that is that Tabitha and Adam Moore had a baby girl yesterday morning. I think it was about uh, 3 a.m. yesterday, and so we rejoice with them. We're, we're happy for them, and I know that you will want to rejoice with them as well. During the days when Muhammad Ali was a heavyweight champion, he was often seen in not just the sports section but also in the headlines, always saying something or doing something, that would cause him to be the center of attention. And he would go around, many of you remember this, loudly boasting, I'm the greatest. He'd oftentimes talk about how pretty he was. Humility was never his strong suit. I think it would be fair to say that about Ali. One day, Ali was on an airplane. The plane was ready to take off. The flight attendant had asked him repeatedly to fasten his seatbelt. And he finally told her, I'm Superman, and Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the attendant shot back immediately, Superman don't need no airplane. Now buckle up. <laughs> Legend has it that the lion was proud of his mastery of the animal kingdom. One day he decided to make sure that all the other animals knew that he alone was the king of the jungle, and so he went around taking his own informal survey. He was so confident that he bypassed the smaller animals and went immediately to the zebra. Who's the king of the jungle? The lion asked. The zebra replied, why, you are, of course. And the lion gave a mighty roar of approval. And then he asked the tiger, who's the king of the jungle? And the tiger quickly responded, everyone knows that you are, almighty mighty lion. And the next on the list was the elephant. And the lion faced the elephant and asked the same question, who's the king of the jungle? And the elephant immediately grabbed the lion with his trunk, whirled him around in the air five or six times, and slammed him into a tree. And then he pounded the lion into the ground several times, dumped him under the water in a nearby watering hole, and then finally dumped him out on the shore. The lion, beaten, bruised, battered, struggled mightily to his feet, 
looked at the elephant through sad and bloodied eyes and said, look, just because you don't know the answer to the question, there's no reason to get ugly about it. <laughs> that reminds us of a warning that is found replete in Scripture. The Bible says that pride goes before a fall. And so this morning, I want us to briefly consider the antidote to pride. This lesson is going to be one of the most straightforward lessons that you could ever imagine because it can be summed up in just four words. And I hope you'll hang on to this through this lesson and then for the rest of your natural life. The four words are these, do what God says. And that's how simple it is. I like Eugene Peterson's phrase to describe discipleship. And it's also coincidentally the title of his book that he wrote on this subject. He says that our discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. God's word is crystal clear. More than anything else, we as humans need to learn to, to be willing to submit our will to the will of God. And you can begin in the early parts of the book of Genesis when man first fell in the garden. When he first violated God's only law that he had given to the first couple. And then from that point forward, we find the scheme of redemption being unfolded. God's attempt, God's plan to redeem man to his side. And I also remind you that the word redeem, upon which our word redemption is based, literally means to make friends again. And so estranged from the favor and the fellowship of God by our sin, God has demonstrated his love toward us that we just commemorated as we gathered around this table. His determination, his intense desire to make friends again with us and for us to have that desire commensurate in our hearts as well that we want to again be in fellowship and in friendship with the God of creation. And, and we can prove that from experience. God's word says more than anything else, we need to submit our will to the will of God. And you see that in our own human experience. When we try to do things our way, when we seek out only our ambitions and aspirations, when we try to please only ourselves and we follow our own inclinations, it seems that we always fall flat on our face so we can prove it experientially. I believe this is just my judgment, but I'm going to announce it as such that the most liberating thing that Jesus ever said in his three and a half year ministry was, if any man will follow me, let him deny self, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus isolated and identified the main problem in that statement by using the word self. You see, Jesus gives us freedom from the constant craving to please ourselves by inviting us to take his yoke upon our shoulders and to follow him in a dedicated way. Or, or we could demonstrate that point, I think, from the clear and consistent message of the Scripture. You, you realize from studying the Bible that from beginning to end, the Bible is a constant, nonstop exhortation to always do what God says. I think that you could probably summarize almost any chapter in the Bible in just about every verse by saying in it there is either explicit or implicit encouragement to do what God says, to, to bend and to break and submit our stubborn will to God's gentle and wise teachings. And if that is not what the Bible is about, then I hope that somebody will correct me later. For example, we could listen to the voice of the old prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 22. 
There is a backstory to this verse that I want to share, but we don't have time to be able to go into all the reasons why Samuel said what he said. But suffice it to say that it had to do with Saul's disobedience, and rather than uh, destroying, completely destroying the people of Amalekite, bringing them back to sacrifice their animals to God, and that was his rationalization. And so Samuel said this as he is rebuking Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as, here it is, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, if correctly quoted. Or we could steal a line from the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest man who ever preached a sermon. And that, of course, is on the Sermon of the Mount. When Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so this morning, I want to remind us of that one fundamental fact. And along the way, to pick up an appreciation for the purpose of obedience by going back to that old and familiar story that was just read in our hearing. If you got your Bible, you might want to open it again to 2 Kings chapter 5 or your device or whatever that you're reading on. And I want us to begin by not rereading the passage. Ray did a good job with it. And so I want to simply refer to a number of the verses in this account and help us to appreciate an application in our modern world that sometimes I think we overlook. And we want to begin by noting Naaman's reaction to the instructions of the servant of God by the name of Elisha. The Bible says, first of all, that Naaman was someone a force to be contended with. It says, for example, that he was a great man, and it also says that he was a commander. May I remind you that a commander is someone who commands people. That's profound. You might want to write that down. And that tells us a great deal, I think, about the personality as well as the authority of Naaman. That means that he was accustomed to having his own way. He was accustomed to snapping his fingers and watching people jump into action because he spent his life commanding people. So it's not altogether surprising in the text that Naaman was insulted by Elisha's response. Think about that for a minute. What if you had a crippling case of arthritis? Some of you deal with that right now, so it's not difficult for you to imagine. But I'm talking about such an advanced case of arthritis that your, your hands were, are gnarled and twisted and every action is painful and labored. And there are times when you think, I don't know how much money I've got in the bank, but I would be willing to spend it all if I could find a cure just for my case of arthritis. In your desperation, you visit the doctor. And you're surprised when the doctor tells you, we now have a miracle cure for what you're dealing with. Just take these seven little red pills and you'll never suffer from arthritis again. How do you think that you would react to that recommendation? Can you imagine yourself looking the doctor in the eye and saying, Red, you expect me to take red pills? Who do you think I am? There's no way that I would ever take a red pill. Now, you give me some blue pills, some green pills, some yellow pills, but I absolutely will not take red pills. Now, let me ask you, would that make any sense at all? Why then did Naaman at the recommendation, the prescription, as it were, miraculous, albeit, but a pres prescription nonetheless, did he stalk off sullenly and offended. In fact, the King James Bible says that he, he turned away in a rage. 
There's three or four possible answers to that. Let's run through them briefly. It may well be that Naaman wanted some personal attention. Do you know anybody like that? You know, you, you can get something out of them only if you give them enough personal attention. Sadly, down through the years, I've known the people who are supposed to be Christians, who are supposed to be God's people, who'll come to church only if they've been petted and pampered and personally entreated to attend. It's possible that Naaman wanted personal attention. Or, or maybe the part of the problem is that Naaman thought that he had a better idea. That seems to square with what the scriptures actually say. Note how the Bible says that he had already played out the scene in his mind before he ever got there. Naaman had pictured just how Elijah was going to go about performing the miracle right down to the hand gestures. See, it had already created the scenario in his mind about how that, that Elisha was going to cure him of his leprosy. And so that's why the Bible says that he spun away in a rage. And the sight of this great man, the, the Bible says, was a great man, hopelessly afflicted with leprosy, marching away from his only hope for a cure because the prescription did not square up with what he believed was going to happen, I think any of us could read that and say that is absurd beyond belief. But unfortunately, it's also true to human nature. Or it could be that Elisha was offended because Elisha, or Naaman was offended because Elisha's prescription, watch this carefully, was just too easy. Naaman apparently wanted pomp and ceremony. He wanted to embellish the cure. He wanted, of course, according to what the Bible tells us about his thinking process, he wanted to make a theatrical production out of it. Here's, here's what's going to happen when I get there. That reminds me, by the way, of the application that we're going to talk about in just a moment. How that some people respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the message of salvation really isn't all that complicated. I've often said that it's easy to understand, but sometimes difficult to apply. I don't think that any of us would disagree with the fact that sometimes it's difficult to live out our commitment to be Christians. But the understanding part, the learning how to become a Christian and to be redeemed from our past sins, that's not at altogether complicated. And sometimes that's the very sticking point. Maybe you've had that experience in conversations with people that you care about. For example, the Bible says in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38 when the gospel was first being preached and, and the people said, what do, what do we need to do? We, we're convinced that you're exactly right, Peter, that we're the ones responsible for the death of the Son of God. Now what do we do? They were pricked in their hearts, verse 37 says. Their conscience had been moved. And so they said, what now do we do? And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Or when Jesus was giving the Great Commission, according to Mark's account, he said this, Believe he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Let me tell you, if that sounds too simple, I'm here to tell you that's all we got. That's all the Bible says. Now, it speaks to the issue in other passages, but it always says the same thing. Here is what it requires to have Jesus' blood Wash all of your sins away, and then the Lord add you to his church, his eternal kingdom, his forever family. Acts 2 and verse 47 says, You know, I read that when Betty Crocker first marketed cake mixes, 
that required only adding water, it was a colossal failure. And the company officials couldn't understand why the mix wouldn't sell because, after all, its selling point in their minds was that it was so simple and so effortless. It only required adding water to achieve a creamy batter and then a fine cake. And so they commissioned their research uh, department to go out and ask people why they weren't buying a cake mix that you only had to, to add water to to answer their dilemma. And the result was, you may be ahead of me on this, but the result was they found that the public felt uncomfortable with a mix that only required water because, and I'm quoting now, it's just too easy. And so they reformulated the cake mix so that it now required the cook to not only add water, but to add an egg. And it became an immediate success. Sometimes the sticking point is when something is just too simple. When we understand the weight and the gravity and the eternal consequences of our sin, and someone says, now here's what scripture says that you need to do to be saved from that sin and to have the Lord add you to his book of life, and their reaction is, there's got to be more to it than that. I don't know how many times you've had that conversation. I've had a similar conversation a number of times in my life with people whose reaction was just that. All of those answers are possible as to why Naaman reacted the way that he did. It might have been that Elisha's response, his instructions were just way too simple. But I believe, and, and this is the essence of this lesson, so please stay with me for the next few minutes. I believe that the very heart of this lesson is a simple principle. And that is this, maybe, just maybe, God requires our obedience because he wants us at the same time to sacrifice our pride. Why are there any hoops at all that we have to jump through? Could God not just save all of us without us having to do anything? He could. But he has required us to do something. I've made the observation from this very pulpit that even in the age of the miraculous, during the apostolic days, whenever someone had a miracle cure worked on them, almost without exception, they were required to do something. And that's the case in the Old Testament with Naaman. Why was Naaman instructed to go down and dip seven times in the Jordan River? Why did he have to do anything at all? I believe because it was a point of pride. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to do anything? Are you willing then to do what the man of God says that you're supposed to do in order to be cured of your leprosy? It was, a, it was a sticking point in the pride of Naaman. And maybe when we come to the Lord in obedience and we're converted to his cause, we need that gentle reminder and sometimes not so gentle reminder that it's not because of something we've done. It's not because if I go be immersed in water, I have then earned my salvation. That's not at all. But that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what brings about our redemption. And so we need to submit our will to the will of God. And we need to swallow our pride. And we need to come to the point where it doesn't matter what the Lord requires. We're willing to say, I will crawl on broken glass to get that done. I love the story of the disciples, and you remember it well of how that they had fished in Galilee all night long, had caught nothing. And then when the Lord said that early the next morning, if you'll go back out and do what I tell you to do and to fish the way I tell you to fish, then you'll not be able to 
your boats will not be able to hold all the fish that you will catch. And Peter's, and it doesn't surprise us, I suppose, that Peter was the first one to answer. You remember Peter, don't you? Open mouth long enough to change feet. That Peter said, Lord, we've been fishing here all night. And then there's the next phrase that I think tells you the sterling character of this man, Peter. No wonder he was called upon to preach the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost because he followed that with, nevertheless, at your word, we will. I wonder this morning, are we to that point in our lives if we're not yet Christians or even if we are already children of God? Are there things that God requires of us as his people that are really issues for us? They are sticking points because pride is at stake. And I have not yet learned, I have not yet grown, I have not yet matured to the point where I'm willing to say in that area, in that little compartment of my life, Lord, I want you to just leave me alone. Or are we willing to say whatever it is that you call upon me to do, whatever it is, I'm willing to do that because I want to be right with my maker. And I want to get right before this day is over. You see, it wasn't until one of his servants came to Naaman, and I do not know in what context he did that, whether he kind of came privately to him or if there were other people around, but I do know that the Bible tells us what that, that helpful servant said to Naaman. And here it is. If a prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more so when he says, wash and be cleansed? Again, Naaman, a man of authority, had no difficulty with what was going on for him between the ears. He understood the instructions plenty well enough. But the problem was, it was just too easy. And so the servant said, if he had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done that? So why not just, just wash and be cleansed? And only then, the Bible says, does Naaman come to his senses and, do, and did what Elisha said to do? I want to end with a modern-day parallel to Naaman's situation. I've already touched on it. If you're a student of Scripture, and even if you're not, the reality still stands, that the Bible oftentimes talks about sin in terms of being a type of spiritual leprosy. It is not at all difficult, especially on the New Testament side of things, to, to find that reference. I don't know that you'll ever find it being discussed as and, and the actual terminology that sin is a spiritual leprosy. But the parallel is drawn a number of times in Scripture. And the idea that just like physical leprosy, our sin is something that can be remedied only by divine intervention. And because of those similarities, you'll find that parallel exists. May I suggest one present-day parallel to this portrait of Naaman that we're studying this morning. In the New Testament, when sinners wanted this leprosy of their sins washed away, they were always given the same command, and that is to go down to the river and be immersed in Jesus. Always and forevermore, with every example of conversion of the book of Acts, you'll find that pattern. Their obedience in baptism was always immediate. It was always by immersion, and it always, watch this carefully, always connected them to Christ. In fact, the Bible refers to it as putting on Christ in baptism. That's how close that connection makes us. But over the centuries, we know that various denominations have gone down other paths. They have assigned other meanings to the word baptism and what it, what, what it should mean to us in terms of its spiritual significance. 
they have made an elaborate ritual out of baptism or, or they've changed the method by which it's administered. And just about every modification and every tweaking of baptism as a scriptural practice that you could imagine has gone on in our modern world and even for many years prior to, to our age. Right down to the what I call the forget about it doctrine. And that just means what it sounds like it means. There are a lot of religious people when we began to discuss baptism will simply say you don't have to be baptized at all. It's not necessary. You can either do it or not do it. And I think that's where probably a majority of religious people in our nation are right now. I don't presume to judge the sincerity of anyone's faith. That's not what I'm doing this morning. Or to disparage the quality of anyone's relationship to God, no matter what their religious background might be. That is not my assignment. That is not my responsibility. But if somebody asks me, how does the Bible say that we ought to respond to the gospel? I would have to say, just like Elisha did with Naaman, you just need to go down to the water. Marshall Keeble, a, a name that although Brother Keeble has been gone to his reward for a number of years, is usually recognized by most older members of the church at least. I had the grand privilege of hearing Marshall Keeble preach in Atlanta when I was just a boy, and that impression continues to this day. And one of his most famous sermons was entitled, There's Water in the Plan. Just go down to the river and be, be cleansed. It's what God calls upon us to do to have our spiritual leprosy washed away. And sometimes people actually get indignant when I give that response. And they say something like, you mean I need to be baptized just like a common sinner? And all I can say is part of the significance of baptism is submission. It also represents a surrendering of our pride. After all, the New Testament says that baptism is a death. Paul calls it that in Romans chapter 6. And if the Lord and if the Lord had called upon you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? All he asks is that you have a penitent heart and you allow that sincere repentance to cause you to courageously confess, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then go down to the water and have my sins washed away. You see, I don't want to argue religion or compare churches or even debate theology when it comes to salvation from our spiritual leprosy. The one principle that I personally return to again and again is that little four-word phrase, especially when it comes to my salvation, I want to, I am committed to do what God says. In the book, The Applause of Heaven, the author tells the sad story of a man that he came to know through a friend. The man's name was Annabel, not Animal, but Annabel, A-N-I-B-A-L. And Annabel, he said in his book, was a tough, tough man. The writer says that it was appropriate that he had an anchor tattooed on one of his forearms because he said that tattoo really represented his personality. Both of them were made out of cast iron. And that was the man described in a nutshell. His broad chest stretched his shirt. He said the slightest movement of his arms flexed those huge biceps of his. This was no meek man in any sense of the word. This was a man who was tough in every possible way, but he was also a man who at that moment, when he first met him, 
was in a prison cell condemned for murder. Well, as this Christian man spoke to Annabel that day, they began to talk about what it meant to be a Christian. After all, that was the reason for the visit. They discussed guilt. They talked some about what forgiveness meant. The author then wrote, The eyes of the murderer softened at the thought that the one who knows him best loves him most. And his heart was touched as we discussed heaven, a hope that no executioner could ever take from him. But as the conversation moved toward conversion, Annabel's face began to harden. Annabel didn't like the statement that the first step in coming to God is an admission of one's guilt, and he was uneasy with words like, I have been wrong, and please forgive me, and saying I'm sorry was out of character for him. He'd never backed down before any man, and he wasn't about to do it now, even if that person was the God of creation. In one final effort to pierce his pride, the author then writes, and I'm quoting, I ask him, don't you want to go to heaven? Sure, he grunted. And for a moment I thought that his stony heart was cracking. For a second it appeared as if Burley Annabel would for the first time admit his failures. But I was wrong. The eyes that lifted to meet mine were not tear-filled. They were angry. They were not the eyes of a repentant prodigal. They were the eyes of an angry prisoner. All right, he shrugged. I'll become one of your Christians, but don't expect me to change the way I live. And that conditional answer, the author says, left my mouth dry and bitter. And so I told him, sorry, you do not draw up the rules. It is not a contract that you negotiate before you sign. It is a gift. In fact, it is an undeserved gift. But in order to receive this gift, the first thing that you have to do is to admit that you need it. Okay, he ran his thick fingers through his hair and he stood up and he said, but don't expect to see me in church on Sundays. The author concludes with these words. As I watched Annabel pace back and forth in his tiny cell, I realized that his true prison was not made of bricks and mortar, but of pride. He had been, in fact, twice imprisoned, once because of murder and once because of stubbornness once by his country, and once by himself. So this morning, my plea and my prayer to you and for you is, no matter what comes your way, no matter what others may say, make up your mind that you will obey. Or in the words of a grand old song that we have frequently sung in this very church, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey and do it now while we stand and while we sing. to trust and obey not a burden 